Joel remembers Saturday Night Live. Remember Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana? She would say, if it's not one thing, it's another. If it's not one thing, it's another. So this week, it's the pulpit. It's okay. We'll get by these things. Well, I want to thank the worship team. They're doing a wonderful job. I thank the AV team. Uh, dealing with some technical difficulties, so uh, if we didn't have uh, such a great AV team, I don't know what we would do with some of these technical problems that we have uh, from time to time. So uh, just grateful for all the service that uh, so many of you do. also want to thank you all for uh, your help with our African Children's Choir on Friday night, and what, a, what, a, what an amazing and blessed event it was uh, to see these kids uh, loving the Lord with all the energy and the world that they have, and, and uh, not only that, but the love in their hearts uh, just melted us. And uh, to have the opportunity to, uh, to be part of that thing was, uh, I think, more of a blessing to us than it was to them, and I just had a really uh, wonderful time. So uh, thank you for, for all you did, church. It was really nice, and I think they felt really uh, wonderfully welcomed here. All right, we're going to continue today in our study of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 54 through uh, verse 8-4. Uh, we're calling this message, Unless a Kernel of Wheat Falls. Uh, so let's go to the Lord before we begin. Lord God, we do thank you uh, for all the opportunities that you provide us. We thank you for the African Children's Choir and getting to be a blessing to them and them being a blessing to us. And Lord, for many other opportunities that you will provide uh, from this church, we are grateful. And Lord, now bless your word. Uh, you tell us to preach it boldly with truth. And Lord, I would pray that it would uh, not return to you void and that we would be changed by the word today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. All right, so, unless a kernel of wheat falls, uh, that's a phrase that Jesus used, of course, that you'll remember, and we'll get to the verse in a little while, but uh, in 1956, uh, this man, Jim Elliott, uh, and four other missionaries were killed uh, while on a mission trip to uh, Ecuador to, to uh, bring the gospel to a people group called the Alca. Uh, and they were known to be very dangerous uh, people. People had gone there to mission uh, to do ministry there before and uh, had not returned. And so these people knew that they could be killed, these missionaries did. And, and in fact, uh, Elliot and his fellow missionaries had brought guns with them to defend themselves against the Alca, but then they had made uh, a decision among themselves that they would not use their guns uh, to kill any Alka who had not come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because they knew uh, that their death meant eternity in hell. Now, can you imagine that kind of courage, that kind of sacrifice to be willing to lay down your life knowing that somebody else's eternal salvation uh, was at stake and that you would be willing to die to be sure that somebody else did not spend eternity uh, in hell. And so... Uh, these missionaries, they died, and they died as martyrs, but that's not the end of the story. Two years later, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, uh, and some of the other wives and some other missionaries went back uh, to the Alca in Ecuador, uh, and they gained the trust of the Alca, and they, they preached the gospel there, uh, and as a result of Elizabeth's work and, and some of the other missionaries' wives and the others who went, uh, many of the Alca people now are saved. They're Christians. And it's just an amazing story of, of them uh, going to do ministry to the very people who killed her husband uh, and the other missionary wives, uh, husbands as well. And so uh, an incredible story of their courage and God's grace uh, in their lives. And, and so what we want to see is that the cost of discipleship is often extreme. Uh, sometimes it will demand our very lives from us 
And we'll see it today in this passage as we look at the end of Stephen's story. We'll see this great injustice against Stephen. And then we'll see a great persecution that follows as a result. But then as a result of those two things, we will see uh, the gospel spreading throughout the world. So let's look at the great injustice first. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 54 through the first half of uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul." They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Now, you'll remember last week uh, that Stephen had accused the Jews of resisting the Holy Spirit and always persecuting the prophets and, and not following the law themselves and To an already hostile crowd, uh, this testimony was more uh, than they were ready to take. Uh, They were cut to the quick, the text says. And and we saw a few weeks ago that that those words actually mean that they were sawn in two. Uh, So can you imagine uh, this kind of imagery? They were so angry that they were sawn in two uh, over these words. And and they said, uh, the text says that they were gnashing their teeth. Uh, This is language that Jesus used, as you'll recall. He said, in in hell, there will be weeping uh, and gnashing of teeth. And so you have this hell imagery, these people so angry, gnashing their teeth. And then, in contrast, you have Stephen, uh, as calm as can possibly be, right? Uh, Not uh, not an ounce of stress in him, so it would appear. Uh, He's the picture of calm, uh, like we might picture eternity in heaven. And, And so, how could he be so calm? Well, he's calm because he is indwelt by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's an amazing contrast between Stephen, who has the Holy Spirit, and all these other people who don't. It's the difference between heaven and hell. The difference is that great. And being indwelt by the Holy Spirit gives a believer a power that somebody without the Holy Spirit simply cannot have. And Stephen, with the Holy Spirit, is able to undergo this severe test and be able to pass it. The Holy Spirit gives us peace in times of our greatest trouble. You know, Stephen knew at this point that they were going to kill him. And so they're looking at him. The text says that they were gazing intently at him. And you'll recall back in verse uh, 615 uh, that the text says that uh, he had the face of an angel. And they were gazing intently at him because he has the face of an angel. And now we see Stephen gazing intently up and seeing this vision of Jesus. So as they gaze at him intently, he's gazing up into heaven intently. Uh, And as the Sanhedrin is gazing at Stephen, they see this face of an angel. Uh, But Stephen is there looking at Jesus, and Jesus is looking at him. And he's got this vision of Jesus before they even cast a single stone at him. And isn't it just like Jesus to show up 
at times of our greatest need. And there he was, seeing, uh, seeing Stephen face to face. And so Stephen reacts. He says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And we know from the book of Hebrews that after, uh, Steve, after Jesus' work, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, right? That indicates the completion of Jesus' work. But, but now here's Jesus standing to welcome the first martyr of his church. And I think that's a glorious picture. And, and so uh, Stephen calls him the Son of Man. That is a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And uh, to, to use it of Jesus is to equate him with God. And the Jews, of course, didn't miss that. They knew that verse, but they could not tolerate that verse being applied to Jesus. So they were incredibly angry uh, over that. And, and this was blasphemy in their ears, plain and simple. And they just didn't want to hear it anymore. And they became even angrier upon hearing this. And so uh, they cover their ears and they cry out with a loud voice. And, and uh, it, it's just an amazing uh, thought to think about these adult grown men behaving like this, right? What we expect it of children sometimes, right? You, you've all seen uh, your children. They, they will cover their ears and they'll cry out and, and they'll, they'll close their eyes and they'll turn beet red. They're in the midst of a, of a tantrum, right? I mean, you, you've all seen that in our lives. But to, to think of these grown men uh, all doing the same thing, uh, it's really incredible. But such was their zeal for their own religious traditions that they would not tolerate or stomach what Stephen was saying. And so they rushed at him with one impulse. That's the Greek word that we've seen over and over again in Acts already, homothumadon, how they do things of one accord. We've seen that used in the first few chapters. They prayed of one accord. They were in one spirit. Uh, they ate together of one accord, all homothumadon. But here we see it used for the first time in a negative sense. They were of one impulse, ready to rush at Stephen and kill him. Uh, and so that's the first time we see it used negatively. Now, before we get into uh, the, the actual stoning of Stephen, I want to just talk for a second about the theology of stoning, why they did this. Um, crucifixion was a Roman penalty, right? That was imposed much, much later than the law. The law uh, allowed for stoning uh, for certain offenses to the Jewish law, and that was required any time somebody was guilty of uh, some of these following sins. Uh, one is idolatry, uh, sacrificing children to Moloch, prophesying uh, by the name of a foreign god, uh, divination, blasphemy, Sabbath-breaking, death caused by an ox, right? kind of random, uh, adultery, uh, and rebellion by children. Uh, children, you could have your parents stoned if you rebelled. So uh, back in the day, if you really want to get back at your parents for something, you just rebel and your parents get stoned. So uh, I'm glad that law doesn't exist anymore. So um, when there was going to be an offense, there have to be two witnesses, right? And, and before the witnesses could testify, they were supposed to be given instruction by the Sanhedrin about the severity of what it was that they were testifying about because uh, the blood would be on their heads if they uh, testified falsely and led a, a man to be condemned and killed wrongfully. So that's kind of how the process worked. And then after he was convicted, the stoning would occur. Now, the purpose, uh, the theology behind this entire stoning process is the purging from the entire community of this one grievous person, this grievous sinner uh, from among their midst. And, and it was to preserve the sanctity of the entire community. Uh, you have to cut out the thing that is, is causing the, uh, 
the community not to be uh, sanctified. And so that's what stoning was. And the Lord reminded his people many times that he was holy. And so therefore, they need to be holy as well. And, and so when they stone somebody, they actually drag them outside the city so that the city would not be defiled by the death. And they also did it outside the city so that no one had to touch the corpse because touching the corpse makes you unclean as well. So the city remains clean, not defiled, and the individuals remain holy and not defiled. Uh, So that's why it happens out there. So stoning is this cruel, uh, lengthy, and very public form of capital punishment designed to uh, cause fear and obedience to God's laws and to deter disobedience. And stoning is a statement by the entire community that it's purging itself of this grievous sin uh, and remaining holy. And so as they begin to stone Stephen together, together they're making a statement. We are not guilty of this blasphemy, and we are going to cut out the thing that is guilty and and causes this uh, lack of sanctity among our midst. And and they were declaring Stephen of blasphemy, uh, and they were declaring themselves holy and wanting to rid themselves of this grievous sin of blasphemy. What they didn't realize, what what they didn't understand, is that what they were actually doing was declaring themselves communally guilty of the blood of Jesus and rejecting his his, uh, salvation. And that's a sin, of course, that Israel still has not repented of. Well, their robes were in their way, so they take their robes off and they lay their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And and this is Luke's introduction of his hero of the book of Acts to us right now. Uh, Saul, of course, is Paul, and he'll have plenty more to say about Saul in the coming verses and throughout the rest of the book. But for now, he just wants to introduce uh, Saul to us. But having laid their robes at Saul's feet, they continued to stone him. Can you imagine the savagery of actually stoning someone? I mean, here's this guy. He's standing in the middle of the circle, and you're looking around for a rock about the size of a baseball or a softball, and you're going to hurl it at this guy's head as hard as you possibly can, hoping to hit him in the head so that he will be killed. Uh, When I was a kid, I was playing in the woods once and with my friends, and we were just messing around and having some fun throwing rocks at squirrels. I mean, you're never going to hit a squirrel with a rock, right? That's impossible, except this time. Uh, I hit a squirrel right in the head with a rock, and he fell out of the tree dead. And I felt so bad about that. And 40-plus years later, I still remember that, right? And I'm still, I wouldn't say I'm not over it, but, you know, from time to time, I think about it. And so can you imagine uh, these guys with the exact opposite attitude? There's no remorse here. They're, They're... chucking rocks at this guy's head and they're high-fiving each other and saying nice shot and encouraging each other to do it even more. And I I just find that to be uh, astounding, uh, beyond comprehension almost. But such was their anger, uh, such was their conviction of the rightness of what they believed in and that Stephen was a heretic and that he needed to be purged from their midst. So while all this is ongoing, Stephen makes these two incredible requests Uh, that remind us very much of Jesus himself, right? First, he called on the Lord Jesus to receive his spirit. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, he said, I commit my spirit to you, O Lord. And you may recall from back in uh, chapter 2, verse 21, uh, Peter told the people that they must call out to God, cry out to God to be saved. And so I don't think that Luke's use of the phrase here, to call out, Stephen calling out to God is any accident So Stephen is looking at Jesus, and Jesus is looking down, 
at Stephen. They're making eye contact. They're having a relationship. And I want you to see the intimacy of what's going on here as, as Stephen is being pelted and he knows that uh, his time left is being counted in minutes, right, before he's going to be, be with the Lord Jesus. And here's Jesus looking down on him uh, with approval. And, you know, Jesus doesn't typically pull back the veil so that we can see his face, uh, but we know that he's up there. We know that he's behind his creation. When you when you give someone a gift, you wrap it in this beautiful wrapping paper and you put a bow on it maybe and a ribbon and yet the present is still hidden underneath the wrapping paper. And when we look, our, when we look at our beautiful creation that God has given to us, we don't see Jesus behind that creation, but we know that he is there. And Stephen was privileged enough to have uh, Jesus peel back the wrapping so that he could see his face uh, before he died. And that's an incredible gift that, God, uh, that Jesus gave to Stephen. Well, the second request that uh, Stephen made was that uh, their sin not be held against them. And you remember, of course, when Jesus was hanging on the cross about to die, he said, Father, uh, forgive them of this sin, uh, asking it of his executioners, just like Stephen asked it of his executioners. The difference is Stephen made his requests to God. I'm sorry, Jesus made his requests to God, but Stephen makes his requests to Jesus, which equates Jesus with God, right? And that's very early testimony from the book of Acts that, that Jesus is equal to God. Um, Stephen asked things of Jesus that only God could give. And so it's, it's, a, a, it's a very early testimony about uh, Jesus being equal to God. And so after Stephen prayed this, these things, he fell asleep. And that, of course, is a euphemism for death. Uh, we see Jesus use this term of Lazarus in John chapter 11 when he says, we're going to wake Lazarus, he has fallen asleep. And when he actually does go to wake Lazarus, what happens? Lazarus is resurrected. Uh, and so Stephen is going to be resurrected in his spirit too. Uh, like all of us when we die, uh, Stephen goes immediately to be with Jesus in his spirit, uh, just like we will. And yet, we will all await our bodily, our, our uh, resurrection bodily, when Jesus comes again and gives us our resurrection bodies. Well, the last thing that Luke tells us before uh, this passage ends is that Saul was there giving hearty agreement with putting uh, Stephen to death. And most scholars think that Paul wasn't just there to hold coats, right, or robes. Uh, they think that he was there in some kind of official capacity uh, working for the government, or else uh, he had just reached such a high level of prominence by this point in time uh, that, uh, that, that people knew who he was, and so they laid their robes at his feet and uh, sought his approval, and, and Saul, of course, gave him that approval. Well, after Stephen's death, a great persecution began, and so we'll see the great persecution beginning with the first half of verse 8 and going through uh, verse 3. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. While following the execution of Stephen, everything changed. Hostility grew uh, immensely, and Tertullian, who wrote about 200 AD, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we find that to be true throughout history. Wherever there has been persecution of Christians, that's where Christianity 
grows. And so Stephen was the first Christian martyr, but his death in God's providence and in fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, used that to scatter the gospel to Judea and to Samaria and ultimately onto the remotest parts of the earth, just like Jesus said the apostles would do all the way back uh, in chapter 1. Uh, Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's from John 12, 24. And he was talking about his own death when he uttered that statement, but it applied to Stephen's death, and it applies to every Christian martyr's death uh, ever since then. For whatever reason, uh, Stephen's testimony so incensed these Jews that they not only killed him, but they decided that they were going to kill everybody else that they could get their hands on too. Uh, so first the apostles were uh, warned, remember, not to preach the gospel. And then they were flogged for preaching the gospel. And now they kill an individual in the church. And then they're going to go out and try to kill every individual in the church. That's, that's their plan. Uh, so the text says that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. You see how it happens, how God uses things, and then he fulfills his prophecy, uh, even through the evil uh, of men. And so the people who were probably scattered were probably the Greek believers, because it's the Greek believers who end up taking the gospel to Judea and Samaria. And the apostles actually get to stay in Jerusalem. And so if the Jewish believers were being persecuted, they probably would have been made to leave too. Uh, so they get to stay in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, some devout men uh, buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. They loved him very much and they mourned him. Uh, but in contrast to these godly men is Saul. Uh, and Saul at this point is portrayed as this uh, ungodly, wicked, uh, very brutal man. Uh, he went about ravaging the church. Uh, your Bibles may say destroying the church or something like that. The, the, the word is only used this one time here in the entire New Testament. And what it means is to ruin, to wreck, to destroy. It's used of wild animals tearing apart their prey or the devastation caused by an attacking army. Uh, that's the kind of devastation, the kind of destruction that we're talking about. And so the ferocity of Saul's attacks show us that he's trying to kill individuals in the people and to destroy the church by killing the people in it. Uh, the tense is that he ravaged and kept on ravaging the church. So over and over and over again, he's ravaging the church. He sought them out house by house, one by one. It, it reminds me of that scene uh, in The Sound of Music, where the Von Trapp family is hiding in the convent and the Nazis are going from house to house to house, uh, trying to find this family that's hiding from them. That's what Saul was doing. He's going from house to house to house, finding whatever Christians that he can find. And if he finds one, he's going to drag them off to prison. And if they say the things that Stephen said, well, they're going to suffer the same fate that Stephen suffered. And here's Paul's own testimony about his persecution of the church from Acts chapter 26, verses 9 to 11. He said, So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus in Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously, furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. But even Paul could not stop the spread of the gospel. Look at verse 8, 4. 
Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The harder Paul tried to stop the spread of the gospel, the more the gospel spread. And it was while he was relentlessly pursuing these Christians, uh, pursuing these followers of Jesus, that he became one himself, as he had this most amazing experience uh, with the risen Lord Jesus Christ uh, in Acts chapter 9. But that's a story for a few weeks from now. Uh, From now, I want to ask us four questions uh, about things that we can learn from this passage. And here's the first one. Here's the first one. If you ask Stephen today, was it worth it? What do you think he would say? Yeah, I think he'd say yes, right? Revelation 2.10 says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, would it wreck your day to be stoned? Yeah, it'd probably wreck your day to be stoned. That's a bad way to spend a day. But the opposite thing is, if you are given a choice and you had to live with the cowardice of not standing up for Jesus, would that be better than being stoned? Uh, I don't think so. I think I'd rather be stoned. And so... Uh, Shakespeare wrote, cowards die many times before their actual deaths, but, but the valiant only taste of death but once, right? And, and so uh, we want to stand up for Jesus. We want to uh, show the kind of courage that he showed. He, he showed remarkable courage, staying against this angry mob alone, but yet he was not alone, right? He's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's face to face with Jesus, and we too, we know Jesus is there. We know we have the Holy Spirit And that's as far as we can be from being alone. Stephen was rewarded with the crown of life. But on the other hand, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 33, if anyone denies me before the Father, then I will deny him. And so you don't want to be on that end of things. We will have many opportunities to witness to people who are hostile. And I know it's hard, but don't deny Jesus. Uh, Preach for him. Speak for him. Receive the crown of life. Uh, Stephen's pain was momentary but his glory was eternal. So when you get to heaven and you see Stephen and you ask him, was it worth it? Would you do it again? I'm pretty sure he'll say, yeah, it was worth it. I'd do it again. Here's a second question. How would you witness to a person of the Jewish faith? You know, most Jews today are secular Jews. Uh, Most of them are not that familiar with their Bibles. Uh, If you asked most of them, uh, why don't you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? They would probably not be able to tell you, but some of them will. Uh, I had to take a class in seminary called evangelism. And one of the projects for this evangelism class was I had to go uh, interview six people who were not Christians from different walks of life and, and ask them, why don't you believe Jesus is the Messiah? And so I asked a friend of Molly's who happens to be Jewish if I could call her and interview her. And she agreed to that. And so I call her and uh, she has her rabbi on the phone with her, uh, which was a big surprise to me uh, when I got on the phone. And so the rabbi immediately takes charge of this conversation and demands of me that I point to him from the Old Testament, uh, prove to him that Jesus is the Messiah. And I was caught surprised, unaware. I did a bad job. Honestly, I did a bad job. And I would love to have that opportunity again because now I'm prepared. And I want you to be prepared too. And so I'm going to show you a couple of Bible verses so that if you're in the situation that I was, uh, you'll have an idea of what to say. 
Uh, just jot these down. These are some of the major verses. There are many more than these, but Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant and talks about in incredible detail, 700 years before it happened, uh, the life and death, the crucifixion of Jesus the Messiah. Uh, and so this is a very powerful chapter to look at. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 7, uh, 9, and 11 of Isaiah talk about the coming Messiah, the, the Messiah born of a virgin, uh, his ministry in Galilee, the second coming, uh, all wrapped up in those chapters. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Uh, if you read those verses and understand the chronology of Daniel, uh, you will be stunned at the accuracy of the prediction of the coming of Jesus and the rejection of Jesus. It's literally to the day. It's fabulous and fantastic. And you can use these verses uh, to witness to, uh, to a Jewish person. And then finally, there's Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And of course, you can't orchestrate the place of your birth. And so Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And uh, so you can, you can start with these verses. There are many more verses that you can use. Uh, but I want you to have an idea of these scriptures so you can be better prepared than I was. Here's a third question. Why does God allow suffering? That's a heavy question, right? And I'm asking that question because Stephen was allowed by God to suffer. Uh, recently, a blogger who calls himself the Wandering Eagle uh, got a hold of one of the emails that I sent out to the church, the one about scrambled eggs and faith. Uh, and he read that email and he blogged about it. Uh, and then he emailed me on the side and, uh, and, and made contact with me. So I looked him up on the internet to see who he was, and this is what his bio page says. The Wandering Eagle is a blog about atheism, doubt, neo-Calvinism, and the evangelical free church. Huh? <laughs> I was like, what does any of this have in common with anything else? And, and still, I ask the question. I don't know, honestly, uh, right now. Uh, but his email told me that he suffered in an evangelical free church. Apparently, somebody had uh, persecuted him in this church, and he still apparently has not been able to get past the hurt. Uh, but other than his personal hurt, he didn't like the idea that God allows people to suffer. And he's, his big issue with the church is, why does God allow suffering? And of course, sooner or later, any thinking Christian is going to have to deal with that question. Why does God allow suffering? Well, this is part of what I wrote back to him. I said, I am sorry for the things that you have experienced in the church. I think that your mistake is judging Christianity by Christians instead of Christ. So Christians will still sin, and they will still make mistakes. They're still human beings. No one loves perfectly, even Christians. Only Christ loves perfectly. So that was my answer to him about his experience in the church. But then about God... The most difficult question that anyone who wants to understand God has to answer is why God allows suffering. Most people are not satisfied with the answers and turn away from God. And in truth, the answers are not very satisfying unless viewed from the perspective of the cross. The cross is where the perfect love of God is found. The gospel is the answer. Christ experienced the ultimate suffering and gave his life for ours, paying the penalty for our sins so we could have eternal life. Well, I haven't heard back from him. Uh, I pray that I will, uh, and I want you to pray with me seriously that the wandering eagle will come uh, to saving faith, and I pray that that answer may have had some effect on him. We don't know, but when we talk about suffering, we have to look at suffering from the perspective of the cross. Why did God allow Stephen to suffer? 
for his glory and for the advancement of the gospel. Uh, why, how was God glorified by Stephen's death? Well, well, Stephen, he didn't run away, right? He stood there and he witnessed to God. He was a faithful witness. He praised God for his provision. He asked Jesus to receive his spirit. He prayed for the forgiveness of the very people uh, who were killing him. How did Stephen's death advance the gospel? Well, God used it to spread the gospel from Jerusalem out into Judea, to Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. Uh, it scattered, it spread like, a, like if you hit a beehive uh, with a bat, that would scatter some bees, right? And that's how the gospel spread. Uh, it spreads by the blood of the martyrs. And we don't understand how our suffering progresses the gospel necessarily on this side of heaven, but it does. And when we get to the other side, we will see these things more clearly and we will understand. But until then, like Stephen, uh, we trust God, we follow God, and if God allows suffering in our lives, we thank him for it and we uh, allow God to do his work so that the gospel uh, will spread and that he will be glorified by it. And that's what being a disciple is all about. So God allows suffering partly for his glory and for the progress of the gospel. And then finally, a fourth question. Are you able to forgive? Stephen asked for forgiveness from the very people who were putting him to death. And how often we hold grudges against people who give the most minor offenses against us, right? We just can't let it go. Uh, in light of the forgiveness that Jesus offered to Stephen, Stephen prays for the forgiveness of his persecutors, and, and we ought to be able to do the same. Are you able to forgive in this way? Uh, Jesus said we are to forgive our offender 70 times seven times. That's figurative language for an infinite number of times. As many times as you were offended, that's how many times you forgive. That means complete forgiveness. So I ask you today, uh, is there someone in your life that you need to forgive? Uh, this week, remember what it cost Jesus for us to be forgiven of our sins, and let's show our gratitude by forgiving others. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful for the witness of Stephen. What incredible courage. What a witness to you, Lord, to stand there and take an unjust penalty for your glory, Lord, and for the progress of the gospel. And Lord, as we think about this country that we live in, uh, Lord, we do experience some persecution, but nothing like what Stephen experienced. And Lord, I pray for us to have the kind of courage that Stephen had, that we would stand firm uh, when it gets a little dicey, when it gets a little hard to be a Christian, Lord. I pray that we would have the same courage that Stephen had and that we could look ourselves in the mirror and say, was it worth it? And we could answer, yes, we did the right thing in the face of persecution like Stephen did, Lord. Give us the courage to do this, Lord, as the apostles prayed back in chapter 4. Uh, Lord, give us the courage, and would, would you still remain with us? Lord, will you do that today? We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.